Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I'm honored to welcome Greg Dickerson with Dickerson International. Uh, welcome to the show, Greg. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Greg is a serial entrepreneur and a real estate developer, a coach and a mentor for several students. Uh, he has bought, developed and sold well over $250 million of real estate. And he has built and renovated hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings and have done uh, some of the mixed use residential subdivisions as well. He has started uh, 12 different companies from ground up. Greg coaches and mentors uh, some of the top entrepreneurs and real estate investors uh, in the country right now. Uh, Along with his clients, Greg uh, has over $2 billion uh, asset under management and several other deals in the process. So it is an incredible, um, uh, you know, resume, uh, Greg, and I'm looking forward to hearing about your education and also all of your experience as well. So I appreciate you taking time today. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me here. And yeah, that's, you know, a, a short way of, you know, talking about adult ADD, right? So, <laughs> No, awesome. I mean, uh, sometimes, you know, it's such a, I mean, with your experience, Greg, uh, you know, it's hard to condense how many things you would have done. So help us get started with your bio and maybe we can, uh, you know, yeah. join the discussion. And for that's, her. you know, that's just my entrepreneurial career. So that sure. started in 1997. Prior to that, you know, I was in the Navy. I went in the Navy right out of high school, did not go to college. I uh, got out of the Navy, worked in the corporate world for a while. So I worked in the restaurant industry and I uh, got some really good business training there and then always had an interest in construction. And, you know, I was working in a restaurant. And there was a guy building addition on the restaurant um, and he hired me uh, to come clean up after him. So that's where I kind of learned construction and got into that. I really liked, you know, mm-hmm. the commercial construction aspect. So I would manage restaurants at night and I'd go work to work for him during the day in construction. So I kind of always had a little side business in construction while I was working in restaurants. And in 1997, I moved to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. You and I are on the East Coast. I'm in Charlottesville. You're in Maryland. So a sure. lot of people from Maryland, D.C., you know, Charlottesville, Virginia, go down to the Outer Banks. That's a summer resort destination off the coast of North Carolina where the sure. Wright brothers took off in Kitty Hawk. So anyways, I moved there in 97 to open some restaurants and I got into uh, construction instead and built everything from there. Uh, you know, from a little remodeling handyman company to a $30 million building company and built it up, sold it off, reinvested the profits and, and you know, developed all these other things along the way and then switched to full-time developer from basically after 2009. Well, I sold my company in 0405, kind of switched to the developer role then and then more specifically 09, you know, when everything changed, I didn't build anymore. I was doing full-on developing and outsourcing my building to other contractors. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's really interesting I was on a podcast earlier today uh, before this one, and, and we were kind of talking about the, the equity capital side, the, you know, starting companies and exiting them. 
that's where I really started. I really started as a, as a business builder. Um, and I took all the cash flow from that and reinvested in, in other assets uh, because I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? So sure. that was the first book I read that kind of opened my mind to business. And it's really funny. A lot of people get real estate out of that book. What I got was the other side. I got the business side out of the book because what I looked at, I didn't look at what Robert was doing or what he was teaching. I looked at Rich Dad, his Rich Dad, and what he was doing and what Robert was going to him for. So if you remember the book, have you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Uh, I have, absolutely. <laughs> so in the book, Robert Kiyosaki talked about going into his Rich Dad's office and you know all these people were coming and going. He was directing all these different businesses, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's who I want to be. I don't want right. to be Robert Kiyosaki. I right. want to be Rich Dad. Sure. So that's mm-hmm. what I did. I went out and started building and buying companies to create cash flow so that I could then invest in the other assets. It just so happened that, you know, my biggest main company was the building company mm-hmm. that I built and scaled and sold. And then, you know, I developed those other skills along the way in terms of development. So, you know, that's me in a nutshell. I started on the business side first as an equity capital guy mm-hmm. and then parlayed into real estate investing and development as I went along. Absolutely. And it's very interesting, the new construction, uh, the real estate, especially the commercial real estate is so much so tied to, uh, you know, a lot of the business concept and the lot of uh, systems related things that we always refer to, you know, that's Mm -hmm. always a nice, uh, uh, you know, thing to learn that real estate leads to sort of the personal development, how you can improve, uh, you know, all of your operations and things like that. So I have always enjoyed that component, you know. Uh, So Greg, uh, as experienced as you are, uh, you have done, you know, multifamily, you are big into, uh, you know, sort of the co- commercial ground up new de- developments as well. Can you maybe share your sentiments, uh, Greg, about how you evaluate markets and perhaps how you kind of take on the new deals that come along uh, to you through your desk? Yeah, so I don't look at markets. I look at the deal. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm market, market agnostic. Sure. If it's a mm-hmm. good deal, it's a mm-hmm. good deal. Okay, sure. now. If it's a good deal, then I kind of look at the ancillary things around it. But, you know, market analysis is very simple. You need one thing and one thing only. You need net migration, positive net migration. Sure. If there's mm-hmm. more people moving in than moving out. Everything else is going to align. Sure. So mm-hmm. that's really, you can really break it down that simple. And then a lot of people get really scientific about it and look at all the different, you know, income growth, job growth, this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, if you have positive net migration, everything else is going to fall in the line. Sure. And if you look at the top demographics right now, the most sought after markets, you're talking about Southeast, you sure. know, Florida, Texas, uh, some Alabama, you know, some Mississippi, uh, Arizona, uh, you know, Colorado, those types of areas. And that's where everybody's going. Sure. So mm-hmm. where's everybody leaving? New York, California, you know, the Northeast. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially right now with, you know, we're in the, we're still in the coronavirus pandemic. This is July of 2020. So everything is in that context. So when I look at markets, um, I will stay away from certain markets, even if it's a good deal, because of certain things like sure. California, New York, rent controls, you know, all of the tenant friendly laws that are in process and they're getting mm-hmm. ready to be passed, especially right now. So I really don't want to be in those markets. But in general, I look at the deal first and then market is secondary. 
I see. I see. Or does uh, like, let's say the primary market or, you know, like the sub market as we call it, or perhaps let's say if it's a city core and you're mm-hmm. perhaps maybe going to suburbs, maybe 20 miles out, uh, 50 miles out, things like that. How, how do you kind of, um, you know, let's say as the de- uh, asset uh, or the deal comes to you, Greg, uh, do you maybe consider that, okay, this is maybe perhaps 20 miles away from the, uh, you know, sort of the urban core uh, or it is, you know, maybe 35, 40 miles. Do you consider some of that population density or uh, perhaps some of the, uh, you know, the driving distances and things like that. Does any of that uh, uh, sort of come into play when you're taking on new construction projects? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, when you're ter- determining highest and best use, you've got to look at what's the population, what's the demand, what's the mm-hmm. demographic, sure. and where is it? And, you know, so I'll qualify the good deal. It can it can be a great deal in the wrong spot. Sure. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look at some of those, you know, demographics and information around it. And, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, you don't want to try to build um, you know, a movie theater that is outside of the city center in some rural demographic where you've only got a couple thousand people or maybe even 10,000 people, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like that. Or you don't want to build a hotel where nobody's going. So you got to have sure. the demand drivers, the population, things like that. So absolutely, I, I do take a look at those things. And, and that's first and foremost when it comes to development and even, you know, any deal that you're going to do, really. You want to make sure that the use is appropriate for the demographic. Got it. Got it. Now, uh, Greg, give us some sort of step-by-step few major things that go on uh, when you're developing the projects. And I'm interested to know, like, you know, obviously going from, uh, you know, sort of land entitlements to, uh, you know, you're looking at the construction plans, the community hearings and things like that. And uh, also, especially, you know, how you handle the financing end of it. Can you maybe elaborate at a high level, some of the, uh, you know, sort of the major uh, checkpoints uh, in a new construction process that you go through? Yeah. So first and foremost is zoning. Is the property zoned for the use that you're looking for? And is there demand and Mm -hmm. demand drivers for that use? Um, And you could be 20, 30, 50 miles outside of a major urban core if there's sufficient um, documentation and evidence that that demographic and population is going to grow and become a bedroom community of the major demographic. Hence the Baltimore, Maryland surrounding areas, D.C. surrounding areas. You can be 30, 50 miles outside of D.C. and still be red hot. So uh, Atlanta, you know, your major city center. So first thing you look at is, you know, proximity. Uh, You look at zoning. And then you look at the environment around the zoning. So even though it's zoned, is it a pro-development environment? And what is your, you know, what's your opposition to development going to be? Mm -hmm. You know, because development is a a very highly opposed thing in a lot of areas. Sure. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, people don't like progress. They don't like development. They don't like land getting disturbed, right? So you got to understand those rules. So once you understand all that and and, and it looks like, okay, well, we're zoned and we can do what we want to do and it's going to work and the numbers work, you know, I put together a real quick, you know, financial feasibility uh, to make sure that the numbers overall are going to work. And you just start Mm -hmm. with the end value, whether it's a, uh, you know, apartment complex, you're going to have an income, you you use your operating assumptions, you get a net operating income, you know, it's going to be worth X. So, you know, it's going to cost X to build it and they're asking X for the land. So is that going to work? So that's a quick mm-hmm. financial feasibility. If it's a for sale product, same thing. What's it going to be worth at the end of the day? Then you reverse your numbers. What does it cost me to build it? What's my margin? Uh, what is the land cost? What's the development cost? And then, you know, is it going to work? So yeah. you start with mm-hmm. those things first. And if all that looks good, then you go to the next level. Mm-hmm. The next level is what is the topography of the land? What does it look like? 
you mm -hmm. know, is there any environmental concerns? Are there any utility encroachments, railroad tracks? You know, what does the access look like? What, what are the utilities serving the property? What's it going to take to get it there? So you kind of start looking at those things and that's just phone calls and information and understanding yeah. where mm -hmm. to look uh, to find out what that all uh, is about, what it entails, what it's going to cost to rectify any of those situations if there are issues. Um, you know, then once you have that, then you move to your LOI stage. And for me as a developer, I never buy land until I get all my entitlements, improvements, and permits, and I tie the purchase price to that. So if I'm looking at a parcel and I can get 500 units, mm -hmm. then I'm going to tie my purchase price to being able to get the approvals, contract closing, and purchase price to being able to get the approvals for 500 units. And if it comes in lower than that, we're going to adjust the purchase price down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to that. And I don't close until I get all of my permits all the way down to the building permit to build that project. Then I close on the land. So um, I tie land up for almost nothing in a lot of cases for sure. the initial first 45 to 60 days of feasibility. Mm -hmm. And once I decide I'm moving forward, I'll put up an earnest money deposit. And then that's it until we get, uh, we get all our approvals and then we close. And that could be a year, it could be two years, you know, it just depends on the market. Some areas it could be three or four years, just depends on what it is you're doing. Right, uh, right, so right. Once we've done that and we've moved through the entitlement process, which now you got to get your surveyors and your engineers and, you know, you start designing the site first and the goal mm -hmm. is to maximize the site, bring the highest and best value to the site. You're moving through that process and simultaneously getting all your approvals and going through those hurdles, all of your traffic studies and environmental impacts and water quality and soils and erosion control plans and you're just doing all that stuff. Um, you know, you're working all those while you're doing that, you've established, let's say it's a building, what your footprint looks like, then you can start your architectural once you kind of have a good idea of what your footprint's going to look like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So a lot of people take a building and try to make it fit the land. You got to take the land and then design the building to fit what you can do in terms of the footprint of the land. Sure. And that's where like people ask, well, when you do a multifamily development, why is there so many buildings or how many units per building do you do? And really it boils down to the land, the, the topography and what makes the most sense. You want to try to put as many units under one roof with one foundation as you can, but sometimes you can't, you have to fragment those buildings. Sure. Depending mm -hmm. on parking requirements, access, you know, all those types of things. Um, you know, fire department access, you know, all that, all that stuff has to come into play. De de uh, department of transportation requirements, you know, all that. So those are all the things that you work through the process while you're working that you're lining up your finances. So your financing typical construction debt that's going to come from a, you know, a bridge lender or a local regional bank mm -hmm. um, at the very high level. I mean, local and regional banks, you know, will come together and do $50, $100 million construction loan projects. So sure. typically those are going to go through traditional banks. Then there are conduit lenders, bridge lenders that are, you know, basically are hard money for commercial multifamily um, that lend money on those things. That goes through a mortgage lender, you know, broker who's going to originate that debt for you. So you could be working that process. Um, or it could come from like a family office or an equity fund that, you know, invests in those types of things. So there's a lot of different ways to fund construction. But for me, it's mostly been traditional bank debt. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and especially uh, with the, the bigger projects, you know, banks are much cheaper form of capital than, than any, other, any mm -hmm. other type of capital. So you start working that through and, you know, they're going to have an equity requirement. In other words, they're going to want you to put cash in the deal. So you're either using your own cash, which I've done primarily in my career or you have investors and you raise capital and you do that thing. So mm -hmm. I do both, you know, I've used a lot of my own cash during my career to do my own deals. Cause you got to do something with your cash. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then I have a handful of investors that I've worked with over the years. So, 
you know, our, our capital is literally unlimited. We can raise as much as we need to raise with a couple of phone calls to do a project mm-hmm. uh, if it makes sense. And, um, uh, you know, so that's basically how the process proceeds. And, you know, as you move to the loan closing, you know, all the checks, all the boxes are checked and everything looks good. Then you take the land down uh, and then you break ground, you start construction. And uh, as you're building the building and things are progressing, um, you start the lease up project. So that's where you hire me. I hire a management company. They come in, whether it's commercial, multifamily, whatever it is, I always use third party management mm-hmm. and they come in and they start marketing the property. If we can, if it's commercial, you know, office retail, whatever you want to pre-lease as much as you can before you ever start, so sure. you can start getting some commitments on sure. the residential side. You really can't do that till you start breaking ground and something's coming out. People know there's going to be a place to live, right? Because, mm-hmm. You know, residential, you know, they don't have as long of an outlook as, you know, commercial and office, you know, can sometimes. So once you get to a point to where you know you're within six months of a CO, then you really want to start taking applications and start really getting ready to ramp up your, your lease up when the lease department up. is done. Got yeah, it. So that's a high level of how that process works. I know. I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we can obviously spend a whole podcast on the details as well. I mean, I appreciate uh, sharing the detail there, uh, mm-hmm. Greg. Now, uh, a couple of small questions within that, uh, Greg. Uh, can you maybe clarify the initial piece where you said uh, how you are taking the land uh, under contract and how you handle the earnest money deposit. And, uh, you know, you stated that uh, you do not close till you get the actual permit uh, for the number of units that, uh, you know, you initially thought. Can you maybe uh, sort of, uh, you know, go into a little bit detail there? Yeah, yeah. So that's developer 101. You never take down your land till you get your approvals. So uh, the LOI um, and contract, so LOI is just clarification of terms. Once we agree sure. on terms, we go to contract. So all of my contracts are structured where I have a minimum, depending on the project, of 45 to 90 days for that initial uh, feasibility. So that's where mm-hmm. I'm going to determine. I don't even put any money up for that. I don't even put mm-hmm. a deposit up. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a contract that I have, you know, contractual rights to the property. And I don't put any earnest money up until I get through 45 to 90 days of my initial feasibility to determine what can I do? Is it going to get approved and how much is it going to cost? And is it going to make money? Mm-hmm. So I do all that in 45 to 90 days. Mm-hmm. And once I decide, yes, it works, then we put the earnest money deposit up. Sure. So the contract is going to call for, you know, I'm paying a million dollars for the land. Um, I know I can get a hundred units or, you know, I think I can get a hundred units. So that's, you know, $10,000 a unit. So uh, the contract says if, I, if my density is reduced for any reason, mm-hmm. the contract gets reduced, contract price gets reduced at closing by that amount. Sure. So if mm-hmm. it's $10,000 a door, then I only get 90 instead of 100. I reduce it $10,000 at closing. Sure. So that's how mm-hmm. I, you know, that's all part of the LOI negotiation. So you write that in the contract. Um, and then once I cross that first hurdle uh, of financial or a feasibility study period, then there's going to be an earnest money deposit due usually around you know, one to 5%, depending on the price of the land, sure. you know, maybe 10% if you have a, you know, really hot piece of land. Mm-hmm. So I'll put that refundable earnest money deposit up mm-hmm. that if for some reason that project does not get approved or if I get down zoned, meaning at any point during the process, if the property gets down zoned for much, much less density, that's even going to make sense financially to where even a purchase price adjustment doesn't make sense, um, you know, which a lot of times it won't then I have the ability to walk and get the earnest money back. So that's mm-hmm. kind of how that works. 
I see. Thank you for that uh, detail. Now, uh, Greg, you are expert into, uh, you know, repositioning companies and taking over maybe perhaps distress, uh, uh, you know, sort of the companies and kind of turning them over into profitable companies as well. Uh, can you maybe describe, uh, you know, how, what that process looks like? What are the important elements when you are uh, looking at uh, some of the distress, uh, uh, you know, companies? Yeah, so it's really interesting. It's a lot like real estate, right? So sure. when you're looking at a business, you want to understand who's your customer, who's your market, um, what are the economics of the deal? Mm -hmm. So not only economics of the company as a whole, what's the income, what's the expenses, what are the opportunities to grow, scale, and expand, and what's the market out there for that, what's it going to take, but also unit economics. So if it's mm -hmm. a uh, brick and mortar business, you know, you're going to have a uh, facility, whether it's a leasehold business like restaurants or retail or something like that, you're gonna have certain unit economics. In other words, how many dollars per square foot does that business generate, right? So you start looking at all your KPIs and all your metrics of the business and then understand, is there growth potential and businesses trade on a multiple of their um, net operating income to a real estate uh, deal is EBITDA to a business, earnings before interest tax depreciation and uh, depreciation and amortization. So, that's like an NOI for real estate. So at the end of the day, what you want to look at is what's the EBITDA of the company? What is it generating? What is the multiple average for the industry at acquisition at the level it's at? Once you build it up to a certain level and there's exponential benchmarks for companies in terms of number of uh, locations, number of businesses, if you're you know, rolling up fragmented you know, businesses like a dental practice and you buy a bunch of dental practices or, mm -hmm. you know, veterinary clinics or restaurants or whatever it is, as you get a certain number of businesses into that portfolio, the value of it grows exponentially. When it comes to a general business like manufacturing or software or something like that, software could be number of users to where exponentially over a certain amount that the multiple goes up mm -hmm. exponentially. So let's say you have a million users on the platform, the multiple might be 10x. Once you hit 10 million, the multiple might be 15 or 20x. For the same product, you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So same thing in like a manufacturing company. Once you, you know, let's say at 10 million, you might have a 5X multiple. But once you hit 100 million, you might have a, you know, 15X multiple. Mm -hmm. You know, just mm -hmm. because you're at that volume level. Sure, sure. Then, there's, then, then you look at driving, you know, to the bottom line, enhancing the EBITDA. So if it's an owner-operated business, maybe they've been running some, you know, things through the company. Instead of reporting it as income, they've just been offsetting. So you want to boost that EBITDA, boost that income just like in a real estate deal, it's mm -hmm. all about the net operating income. So the more sure. you show on the bottom line, the more it's worth. So kind of the same process. You look mm -hmm. at the market geographically as well as economically, you know, what's the market for the product and the business mm -hmm. as well as what market is it in and what's the growth and, and you know, how are you going to be able to increase the value of the company? Good. Th thank you for that detail, uh, Greg. Now uh, we're in an interesting time, uh, Greg, mm -hmm. where obviously a lot of businesses are kind of being Amazon, uh, you know, uh, kind of almost getting competed and bid out by, you know, a lot of online retailers now. How do you, uh, you know, kind of take into effect the effects of competition and what that can do to that business? Can you maybe share some uh, uh, thoughts about that? Yeah, so it's it's a very different environment when it comes to competition and where it's going to come from. So not only do you need to look at, you know, Amazon proof if you're retail or whatever, you need to be able to now anticipate what's coming next. Sure. Where is it going next? Like for instance, remote working. So through the pandemic, we've all learned, man, we don't need as much office space as we thought. Sure. We can actually, this actually works. You know, right. 
mm-hmm. uh, not as good as face to face, but it, it works and it can work. Sure. So now that whole environment's changed of, man, do I even need an office? Do I even need a brick and mortar, mortar presence? Um, and your competition's coming in a lot of different areas from a lot of different directions. So you have to really start thinking now when you're looking at business that has been traditionally done, even restaurants that all relied on dine in, you know, versus that takeout option and, you know, those types of things, you have to really be able to number one pivot when the unforeseen happens mm-hmm. and you've got to be able to position yourself uniquely in the marketplace where, you know, people are going to want to go out of their way to do business with you. If there are other more convenient, easier options out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in order to survive and compete, you have to be uniquely positioned to where people will, they're not going to go to Amazon. They're going to come to you. Sure. There's a reason they're going to, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you got to think on those levels at every level in every business now. And then if you're going online, then you need to think about, well, how quickly am I going to become obsolete? Mm-hmm. Because once you're out there, everybody else is going to see you and the big sure. players, you know, may or may not compete with you and stamp you out. Some of them might kind of help you grow because they want to buy you because it's easier mm-hmm. just to let you grow, help you and buy you versus to try to fight you. But some might just put you slam out of business. Sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, and do that. So you need to understand if you're going online and you're going against the big boys and girls, where do you want to be in that cycle? And how do you position yourself to be on the good side where you're helped, you're bolstered and you're, you're an acquisition target versus somebody they're just going to stamp out? I see. Now, uh, along the same lines, uh, Greg, um, can you share some thoughts about, um, you know, how you evaluate, uh, like, the people and systems and things like that, right? Like, obviously, in a grow, uh, in a sort of a struggling business, sometimes you have, uh, you know, inefficient processes, or some of the folks are not uh, in uh, correct seats uh, where they should be, as we say it, right? Uh, can you talk about that people and system element uh, uh, and how you kind of uh, look at it and uh, try to, uh, you know, reposition that? Yeah, so businesses are all about people, operations, process, or people, operations, profit, right? So you got to look at the people first, you know, aces and places. Do you have the right people in the right seat uh, doing the right things? And are they focused on the things that are going to really move the needle forward? What happens a lot of times, you hear the 80-20 rule where, you know, 20% of your results come from 80% of your efforts. Um, What I like to do is drill that down even more. And Mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, well, let's take that 20% and drill that down into the 100% of what drives that 20%. And then you want all of your people focusing on that 100%. So if you've got somebody who you're paying $100,000, $200,000 a year, and they're doing these other things that, are, that could be outsourced or systemized through technology, mm-hmm. okay, and that's keeping them from focusing on 100% of that 20%, mm-hmm. that's where the systemization comes in. So mm-hmm. systemization comes in in terms of where are your weaknesses, where are your repetitive things that can be automated and outsourced, so that mm-hmm. your best people can focus on the best things that drive the organization forward exponentially. So that's where that all comes in. So the first thing you look at when you go into a company to evaluate the leadership is number one, do you have leadership? Mm-hmm. Are, is there a leader and are they leader quality? Okay, that's number one. Number two, um, what, what are the results of that leadership? So the cool thing about a business and the cool thing about real estate, it's all in the numbers, right? The sure. numbers don't hide. So if you know how to read the numbers and you understand what the numbers are telling you, because you can make numbers look however you want to make them look, but you got to know the business, you got to know the industry, and you got to know the KPIs. So if you sure. know that, 
-hmm. you can look at numbers and know whether they're real or not. Mm -hmm. You know what your unit economics are. You know what your cost should be. You know what your revenue should be. You know, you know what, you know, all these little things should be. So if there's something off, something that's skew, somebody knows why. So then you got to drill down into what's going on there. So, you know, evaluating leadership, evaluating teams is pretty basic at that level in terms of what does a good leader look like? You know, are they, are they serving their organization? Are they providing leadership from the front, giving everybody everything they need, tools, training systems, and support to be successful? Mm -hmm. More importantly, clear direction. Are they providing that organization with very clear direction and no uncertain terms exactly what's expected and when, and then holding them accountable to that performance, measuring that behavior and holding it accountable to the goal, and then providing real-time, up-to-date feedback and direction in order to correct anything that's not happening. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the types of things that you look at, but really what it boils down to is you should be focusing 100% on the 20% that's gonna drive results. Everything else needs to be outsourced and or systemized through technology. Awesome. Great, great advice there, Greg. Thank you for that. Uh, if you have any example of a, a reposition, Greg, can you maybe share with our listeners, uh, maybe they can benefit from uh, kind of, uh, you know, how you did it or, you know, how you evaluated that? In a business? Sure. In a business is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I'm working on right now is a, you know, manufacturing operation. And when you go in and look at that, the fundamental so any business, you've got your, your clients, right? Who are your ideal clients, okay? So the number one thing you look at is who is your best client? So if you're manufacturing products and you have one or two customers that buy the bulk of your goods, they're very easy to work with, they pay you on time. In fact, they'll pay you early for discounts, you know, things like that. They don't mm -hmm. create problems for you. So the question is, how can I get more of them? Sure. So mm -hmm. the first thing you look at when you're looking at that kind of environment is you go in and you say, okay, if we have one or two or three ideal clients, or if we have something that's resonating in the marketplace, like I've got a marketing company I'm working with, and you know he's kind of been sp spinning his wheels a little bit in terms of growing and scaling his business. So what we've done there is the same kind of thing. We've kind of refined it and said, look, you don't need to be everything to everybody. You need to be the one thing to this market, you know, very niche, de you know, defined, you know, target market that can be anywhere in the country or the world, but it's a certain niche that you're after. Mm -hmm. so that you can be seen as the expert for that industry to get the message out for them and help them grow and scale their business and focus on what is the solution you're pro providing to that company. Same thing in manufacturing. What is it that you're doing that you're providing to that individual, to that company that's so valuable? Mm -hmm. Why are they coming to you for 80% of their business when they could be going elsewhere? Sure. So mm -hmm. really, that's what you want to look at. When you're looking at a business, if you're a product-driven business, who are your ideal clients? Who's buying the most of what you have to offer? And how can you get more of them? You know, mm -hmm. um, plumbing. So I had a plumbing company one time and, you know, we looked at the sales of that company and you could be a service-based business where you're doing, you know, $100 tickets, or you could have one or two clients where you're doing $100,000 worth of business. So if our goal was to be a $10 million business, well, which way is going to be the easier, fastest way sure. to get there? Right. So really what's amazing is in any business, doesn't matter whether it's manufacturing, a service-based industry like plumbing, or if it's a marketing company, you're going to have an ideal client who represents, or a group of, who represent probably the bulk of your income, mm -hmm. that are easy to work with, and want more of what you have, so how do you get more of them? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really what that boils down to. 
Awesome. Thank you. Uh, now, given the pandemic that we are going through, uh, Greg, and some of the long-term pain that's going to come through, what are your thoughts uh, on the uh, sort of the coming six to eight months to a year, perhaps? And how can we maybe perhaps uh, take some steps to uh, kind of be a hedge uh, against the recession? So, you know, number one, reduce any unnecessary overhead expenses, operating costs, things like that. So you want to be lean, nimble, and operate as lean as you possibly can. Um, you know, at the same time, take advantage of any, uh, you know, expansion opportunities that you have. So I'm not saying contracting your expansion of your market like we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Once you understand what business you're really in, who your clients really are, go after that and expand exponentially. So if you think of an accordion theory, okay, sure. what you want to do is you want to expand up top you want to expand your revenues while your expenses contract sure. exponentially quicker. Okay. The other way is when the economy is contracting, you want to, you know, as your income is reducing, you want to exponentially reduce your expenses, you mm -hmm. know, much faster than your income. So think about that accordion, depending on what the market's doing, but right now it's time to be lean, efficient. Don't take on any extra overhead that you don't need to. That's not going to produce the 100% of the 20% and um, build your cash. So cash is king. The dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Even with what the Fed is doing, it's hard to believe and hard to understand and what the Treasury is doing. They're really controlling the capital markets. That's sure. really what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's who you're competing with if, you, if you're in that world. Um, you want to build the dollar and, and reserve, you know, get some cash reserves built up because you're going to be able to take advantage of opportunities and you're going to be able to sustain and weather any kind of a you know, long-term long outlook of a downturn. Now, with what we've seen with the Fed and the Treasury, where we're at in the economy, assuming we get past the virus, we get a vaccine and it's all behind us, which I don't even know when that is and, and what that looks like, but let's assume we do the end of this year, going into next year, we're, we're gonna be 18 to 24 months before you, any, you see any real significant economic recovery. Because like you said, there are a lot of businesses that have closed. There are a lot more that are gonna close. They're not gonna be able to just reopen. Um, you know, so there's going to be some contraction and some damage there, but that's only, I'm going to say only, I mean, that's only 20, 25% of the, of the economy, right? The other 80%, mm -hmm. 75% is still firing. It's mm -hmm. still doing well right now. We're still producing probably 75% of GDP versus where we were before. Now, that's only because of what the Fed and Treasury have done. If sure. they haven't done what they did, who knows where we'd be right now. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be fine. We're going to do fine. The question is, what's the result and the impact of what the Fed and the Treasury have done? Uh, what is that going to look like? And how many companies are really going to be out of business over the long term moving forward? How long does it take to get everybody back to work? Mm -hmm. You know, probably 25-30% of the workforce is out of work right now. Um, how are we going to be able to get all them back to work and get back to that, you know, single digit unemployment Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's great. And sometimes, you know, Greg, uh, I feel like we are in that uh, early spring or early summer type of analogy that, you know, once you have a frozen river and the ice up top is kind of frozen, so you have a sheet of ice on top of your river and that's quickly melting. And that's sometimes how I feel with the stimulus and where we are at. I mean, uh, as you know, that you know, a lot of businesses have obviously closed. You have courts and a lot of institutions that are closed. And the stimulus is probably going to run out now in, let's say, end of July at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that 
it's almost analogous to that sheet of ice that once the all of this ends and the courts open up and we start to see the clear effects of what uh, what we are dealing with i feel that there is definitely a lot of uh, damage that is ahead of us maybe the perhaps the uh, like later part of q3 and q4 are going to look a lot more uh, you know painful would you agree yeah, yeah. And you know what's interesting? So we are a global economy. We are interconnected at the hip all across the world economically. Sure. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of people aren't talking about and thinking about right now, what's the effects of that? Because we can't, the United States is a big part of the world economy in terms of travel. Sure. We mm -hmm. can't do that right now. We can't go right. spend money in these other countries. Now, the good news is it's being spent here, you know, in this country to a degree. Um, the other thing that, you know, to your point is people are going to pull back and start building their cash reserves, like I talked about, start saving sure. more, mm -hmm. which, you know, when you look at bank deposits and savings accounts, they're at all time highs right now because people are trying to build back what they've had to go through. Right. The big tidal wave, the big icebreaker that we've got coming is that ice continues to melt right now at the end of July. Right. So you've mm -hmm. got two things happening. You've got the uh, moratorium on evictions running out. You've got the... Um, bonus unemployment from the federal government running out that $600 surplus. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's been a lot of what's been driving and keeping things alive. And it's really interesting. I heard uh, an interview today with a um, hub owner in Europe who said we were forced to close down by the government. Therefore we should be made whole by the government for every dollar that was lost. <laughs> so what is inflation? What are the results? What's the outlook until that happens? And in, unless something like that happens where every citizen is made whole financially for what they've lost during this time, dollar for dollar, you can't have hyperinflation at the consumer level, okay? Right. Where you've got inflation as at the institutional level, mm -hmm. from all the asset classes, you know, stocks, right. mm -hmm. bonds, gold, oil, all that kind of stuff, right. bank, debt, and credit because of the capital markets and what the Fed's doing. So that's where the real inflation has been but all that money is staying amongst a few institutions. It's not sure. hitting the main street. Main street yeah. So I don't, I don't think we're going to see a lot of hyperinflation, but what we do have this month is we've got some serious pain coming. If the fed doesn't extend, well, number one, hold off on taxes because taxes are due in July. So you got, forgot that. Sure. You've got taxes <laughs> that are due. If you haven't paid them, they're due in July. You've got unemployment running out and you've got the rent moratorium, eviction moratorium nationwide that's expiring. Right. So there's a lot of things that are going to happen that are going to cost a lot of people money and create a lot more pain if, if the government doesn't you know, step up and do something. Incredible insight. Thank you, uh, Greg. I appreciate it. Uh, I mean, I feel that, uh, you know, obviously we are coming close to the podcast uh, time now, but uh, a couple of last questions, uh, Greg, here. Uh, you prefer new construction than a perhaps a typical value-add multifamily deals. Uh, can you maybe uh, share some of your thoughts on, you know, why you kind of uh, steer yourself in that direction and why you are a proponent of a lot, lot more like, you know, development and new construction? Yeah. So uh, there's bigger margins in development. So generally, you're going to make a 30 to 40, sometimes 50% margin in development. Now, value add, you've been able to hit some good margins over the last four or five years, but they're gone now. So that's a mm -hmm. whole different game in value add, unless you find a really distressed uh, situation, which then that's kind of in my wheelhouse, more opportunistic, heavy distress. Um, the typical value add game has changed. It's no longer what it used to be, where you could buy something three or four years ago 
and increase you know the rents and increase the value 20 or 30 percent over three or four years now it's more of a portfolio play so it's a different different animal different game um but ground up development it's always worth more there's mm -hmm. always more demand for newer product uh people you know new always rents for more always sells for more it's always worth more and it's always more competitive in the marketplace people love new places to live um you know and it's clean, it's easy, you know what you got, you can do it, you know, for me, so development is risky, but to me, it's not it's what I've always done. So I understand it, I know mm -hmm. what it costs, I know what it takes, and I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy it, I like it. And right now, it's, it's especially great right now, because inventory levels are down all across the country, residential, single family residential, as well as commercial, um, multifamily assets, you know, there's not a whole lot of stuff out there on the market. There's more land available to develop. Um, you know, so, uh, and cap rates are compressed on existing products. So it's a very attractive time. And if you know what you're doing in development, you can pivot through every market cycle. I was developing in 2009, uh, when the markets, you know, were collapsing and things were coming to an end in the real estate market, I was still making money in developing. You just have to shift and you have to chase the market down and in a different direction than you do when it's on the rise. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's all about inventory. It's all about supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So you want to go where the demand is and fill the holes mm -hmm. and fill the gaps. Mm -hmm. And then be ready for that. And then also know what's coming in the pipeline. You know, uh, I was getting ready to do some hotels before all this hit. And I had four sites and I had four hotels, $32 million, 132 key um, flagged hotels in four different markets uh, in Virginia. And the construction costs came in. They were just so high. I couldn't make the numbers work. So I tabled them. Mm -hmm. If I would have gone through with those, I'd been bringing four brand new hotels online this fall. You I know, see. So mm -hmm. very serendipitous, right? That, uh, that that didn't happen, that we pulled the plug on those projects. But at some point, we'll revisit those. Mm -hmm. But right now, there's a ton of hotels coming online. There's a bunch of them in development. And that segment of the market is going to take a while to come back, you know, once we get to the other side of what's going on. Sure, sure. I mean, definitely the hospitality and the travel is so deeply affected. And as you pointed out, it is going to be a while before we get there and perhaps start uh, looking into the new construction as well. So thank you for coming on, uh, Greg. Uh, one last question. Uh, as experienced as you are, Greg, uh, what are some of the best pieces of advice that you have received and you kind of follow on a uh, perhaps a daily basis to keep yourself disciplined and charge ahead uh, daily in your business? You know, number one, educate yourself. So what I've done, I didn't go to college. You know, I've, I've educated myself. I poured into myself. So I spend a lot of time on personal, professional development every single day, mm -hmm. you know, physically, spiritually, mentally, you know, all of it. I mm -hmm. pour into myself constantly. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of like Warren Buffett, right? He spends, you know, six, eight hours a day reading. You know, I spend every extra minute I have developing myself, pouring into myself and, and doing that. That's number one. Number two, thinking big, thinking like I have no limit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I never, I never have the imposter syndrome. I never have, you know, those moments of doubts where I wake up and I feel like I can't do something. I've always felt like because of that, that I can do anything mm -hmm. and that every opportunity is available if I have the right information at the right time take the appropriate uh, action and apply that information to the right vehicle, meaning business model mm -hmm. go from mm -hmm. there. So I do really feel like within my abilities that I have no limits. I'm not going to go play, you know, quarterback for the New England Patriots and take Tom Brady's <laughs> old job. Right. So right. I'm realistic in what I'm, what I'm saying within my abilities, resources and all that, I don't have any limits. You know, I can go out and do whatever it is that I want to go out and do. So, you know, that, that's really it. I'd say for people, educate yourself, pour into self, continue to develop yourself personally, professionally, uh, in every way that you possibly can. 
for me, it's books, co you know, seminars, courses, mentorship, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, and just, you know, don't be afraid to take big actions, to think big and do big things. Cause you're, you're only here a short time and, uh, you know, anything can happen as we, as we've all seen. So, you know, there's no better time to do anything than right now. Incredible. Thank you for your all your insights, Greg. It's been a great podcast with a lot of great information and a lot of high level things that if folks understand and implement some of those uh, advice uh, uh, that you shared, uh, it will do a lot of good for them. So thank you for coming on. Uh, please yeah. share with our listeners how they can uh, find you and learn more about your company. Yeah, gregdickerson.com. So uh, all the information's on there. I have a YouTube channel, podcast, where I share a lot of, uh, a lot of the information. It's all just short little tidbits of, of, you know, advice and information and things. And, you know, no fluff, no sales, just boom. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. So gregdickerson.com. Great. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure. And I will look forward to another podcast with you with, where we can talk a little bit more about different elements of the business and your advice. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.